Welcome to Health or Consequences, the healthcare and public health podcast series under the podcast label that we do in partnership with Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Paul Haddis from the Tufts University School of Medicine. I'm here with my colleague, John McDonough, from the T.H. Chan School of Public Health at Harvard. And our guest today is the president and CEO of the Mass Hospital Association, Steve Walsh. Welcome, Steve. First of all, thanks so much for having me. It's always great to to join both of you, and uh, even more exciting to be able to do it in this setting. And as a fan of the podcast and the things that both of you have done, both individually and collectively, it's really nice to be able to join you. So thanks, John. You know, um, my path in some ways followed similarly to yours, right? Having served a number of terms, six terms in the Massachusetts legislature and had the privilege of being able to chair the healthcare finance committee and then trying to get involved in this healthcare policy discussion, first through my work with the community hospitals and now through the Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association. And as you know, healthcare has been evolving really over the past decade um, in, a, in a sprinter's pace. Um, and one of the things that I think is changing is um, kind of who we are. And it's just different than the old insurance company, the old hospital. And I think MHA tried to understand that and, and, and kind of get ahead of it. Um, and my predecessor and her wisdom felt that we should be representing more than hospitals, both health systems and physicians and those that are providing uh, uh, post-acute care and looking at patients through the whole continuum. And I think that's what we're trying to do now. And and as the the, uh, system evolves, it really is evolving into that continuum of care. And I think MHA is well poised to be able to be helpful as the discussion continues. Steve, part of that evolution, you know, uh, most of your member institutions do belong to large hospitals and and health systems, but there's been a fair amount of merger and acquisitions happening in in that industry over the years. And so how do you balance the concerns of some of the larger systems like Mass General Brigham, formerly Partners, or Beth Israel Leahy, and sort of the the needs of your other uh, smaller, in some cases, independent hospitals? Yeah. It's a good question, Paul. I think, you know, you look uh, at the trend nationally, there is a movement towards consolidation and the goal to try to be able to be more efficient and provide more services for our patients. But ultimately, it really is about the patient. We're blessed with some of the finest institutions in the world. You mentioned two of them. There's certainly others. But I think it's an issue-based discussion. So every hospital, large or small, member of a system or independent, is faced with substance abuse disorder cases and patients that are suffering with the opioid epidemic or the behavioral issues or acute care issues where they want to get care close to home. The issues really apply to everyone, whether they're large or small. And so we don't say, well, how big is this member? So we'll look at this issue differently. We look at the patient and figure out how do we get the best care uh, for for the people that we serve, the patients of Massachusetts. There could be some issues, though, that don't always cut evenly across all your membership, and I guess that's that's part of why they hire you to help uh, navigate through those things, I imagine. so. Yeah, we don't shy away from those, and of course there are. I mean, the, the, we've talked about it before in the past, the amount that um, hospitals are reimbursed for care differs sometimes in the community as it might in a teaching hospital, and there may be some reasons for that, but certainly there's a recognition that even at the at a small community hospital, it is the largest provider in the community of jobs, the largest vendor in the community, the large uh, provider of community benefits or for um, uh, for assistance uh, in the community with grants and with other outreach and programs, and they save lives every day. You know, they're the lifeline of the community, whether it's a small community hospital or a large academic medical center. So consolidation, mergers, acquisitions, that's been 
the role of the healthcare landscape for a long time now in the hospital sector, the pharma sector, also in the insurance sector. And in Massachusetts right now, we've got the proposed merger of Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare and Tufts Health Plan. Does the MHHA uh, have any uh, concerns, worries, apprehensions about that? Do you have a position on it? Uh, how do you look at that? I think that one of the unique things about Massachusetts, as you both well know, is there's a collaborative spirit between providers and payers. And I think that's one of the things that differentiates us from the rest of the country. You know, having said that, I think the first question is, how does it affect patients? And I think it remains to be seen. I don't think we necessarily have a position yet, but the same rigorous um, process that, that hospitals and health systems have gone through, I think it should, should apply as well to, to, to payers. And the question should be, how is this going to impact patients? Is the cost of insurance going to increase? What does this mean for access issues? And I think that when you answer those questions, if you can do it with the patient in the center, um, then I know that our, our payers in this Commonwealth wake up every morning with the same vocation that the providers do to treat patients. And, and do you have any answers to those questions in a conclusive way at this point that leads you to take a position on it? No, I think that, that right now, the, it's, it's the, this is the phase of asking the questions. Mm -hmm. And I think that maybe when we, you know, you have me back in a couple of months, there may be a different discussion as we kind of see some of the specifics around whether or not this is going to increase cost of care. Okay, thanks. Now, another item that made the news in this past month is that uh, Partners Healthcare uh, announced a significant plan for a capital expansion in its outpatient ambulatory procedure footprint uh, at a number of different sites, you know, throughout the state, actually, even going into New Hampshire. What impact will that likely have, do you think, on spending and competition in our healthcare system? Again, I think that will probably get another rigorous look. I think that the goal of partners certainly is to try to um, put care back in the community, in their community hospitals. Now, there may be some discussion with our other community hospitals about whether or not there's going to be an impact. I think if you read this morning's Globe, though, the bigger concern that we have and among our members at large is other unaffiliated urgent care. I mean, CVS came into this Commonwealth shortly after 2006 and began doing minute clinics. Well, um, there has long been a question as to, you know, are the unaffiliated urgent care or ambulatory surgical centers helping to fund uh, CHIA, the Center for Health Information Analysis, Health Policy Commission, um, community benefits? Uh, uh, do they accept Medicaid? Are they treating our poorest and most vulnerable residents? Are they doing the same kind of programs for the opioid epidemic as our traditional hospitals are? So the real problem isn't necessarily um, the expansion by one member into other communities. It's all of the other expansion that's happened over the last decade and what that has done to not create a level playing field for our members and for the community residents they serve. So let me just build on that a little bit because I, I do hear what you're saying that that part of what's the implications, whether it's partners expansion or other competitors, what, what is the implication of that for the financial sustainability of some of our community hospitals? The HPC, though, opened up another interesting wrinkle, and I think it's still collecting data here, but, but at a committee meeting last week, it even suggested that based on looking at data from a couple years ago, in some cases, the partner's outpatient fees for certain procedures is, is actually higher in spending than the inpatient amount that would be paid 
for the same procedure at one of your community hospitals. So that's beyond the competition issue. There's also the spending issue. Uh, any thoughts about that aspect? Of well, it? I mentioned earlier that we always uh, look at uh, you know price variation, make sure that our community providers are being reimbursed uh, by by insurers in a way that allows them to thrive and thri- survive and thrive in the system. Uh, so be anxious to look at the report when HPC is done compiling their data and maybe have a reaction on it then. Fair enough. So on the same avenue, um, we're about ten years now. The 10th anniversary of the ACA coming up on March 23rd into a part of the ACA that's called the value-based revolution, health system transformation, moving from a fee-for-service financing to value-based and uh, instituting things like accountable care organizations, bundled payments. Massachusetts jumped headfirst into the pool on all of this, and that reflects you now being not just hospitals but health systems. Um, What's your view about how this transformation is actually working? It's not new anymore because we're 10 years into it. Is this working? Is this succeeding? Is this working for patients? Is this working for the systems that you represent? Can you kind of give a little bit of a report card on the value-based healthcare revolution we've been going through? Yeah, it's. Um, this is probably the could be the topic of a you know, couple of hours of discussion, right? Because I think it's one of the more fascinating pieces of what you're um, – asking today, you know, the it's very slow. And so I, for one, am aspirational about this. I believe that a move to value-based care is critically important. I believe that treating the whole person and doing it a different way is the future of healthcare. I think that there's any other way that we can possibly go. But it's still based on a fee-for-service system. So we still have these underlying fee-for-service contracts that accountability organizations or value-based contracts are being built off of. Uh, And more and more providers each and every day are accepting risk for their patients, which I think is also a good thing. Yet we still pay the reserve dollar exactly the way we always have historically. So I think we're going to have to continue down this path. but it's still a little bit too early, I think, to say for certain whether or not it worked. And frankly, I, I share a little frustration that 10 years later we're not further along. Um, now, that's a national perspective. Locally, we've really done an incredible job since 2006. And, you know, you were involved in that, John. I know this well and, 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 and others that, that paved the way for the country. I mean, we're still at 97 or 98 percent covered. That's pretty remarkable. So some of the challenges that people see in other parts of the country we haven't yet experienced here. I think the real frustration is now the the, the federal attack on the ACA um, because that we really ought to be coming together and put the smartest and most creative minds together of how to fix and strengthen the ACA, not how to dismantle it and try to move in a different direction midstream. But on the, on the value-based agenda, that's actually, and it's not really known very well in public, but that's actually not a point of conflict between Democrats and Republicans. It's actually kind of a bipartisan step forward. And we're ahead of the curve in terms of the sophistication of our system. So where we're actually probably further down this pathway, um, how does it look further down this pathway in Massachusetts versus the rest of the country, which in some cases is only just starting to walk down this pathway? Are, Are we the promised land do we have anything good to tell the rest of the country about what it looks like in a more risk value based environment? Yeah, I think you know I think it's a report of progress, but it's not the panacea necessarily. I mean, there are still challenges even here, right? But it's we're walking through steps. I mean, we took a, t- a step in two thousand six 
in terms of coverage. We took another step in 2012 in terms of cost. We're ahead of the, the country in terms of our trends. Other states looked at us initially relative to the uh, Romney care, and now they're looking at us relative to our benchmarks. So all of those things tell a good story, and we remain high quality. Um, but healthcare still is very expensive. Mm-hmm. And we still have to move to value in a way that makes sure that our patients can afford the, the, the care that they get every day. And that's still something that we all grapple with. But I think if any place is going to figure out, it's going to be Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. So the, the sharp end of the value-based revolution here in Massachusetts really is probably the Mass Health program, the Massachusetts Medicaid program, which nearly two years ago now put about 850,000 people in kind of glorified fee-for-service into 17 accountable care organizations, including a lot of your members and some of your non-members. Any insights in terms of how that's going and what you're seeing, what you're hearing from your member institutions and seeing in terms of is this really working and is this a step uh, on a continuous path for Massachusetts or just a noble experiment? I think there's great optimism I think everybody wants it to work, and so when you have something that people are really committed to, they really work hard to try to to, to manage the growing pains and work out the kinks. And, and you know, there have been some growing pains. Um, but this administration has been incredibly accessible and open to trying to fix it, to trying to understand where the pain points are. I mean, one of the things we have to look back is we've had to look back and work through some of the risk adjustments. It was really kind of the first time that we looked at, um, at how to adjust properly for patients based on different circumstances and make sure that we were reimbursing correctly. And so that's an ongoing process, whether or not the initial reimbursement was enough to cover the cost of care. Um, these disrupt funds that had come from the federal government and what happens when those disappear and are those going to be able to be made up by individual systems. And so um, it is still a little early to tell. Um, but it, it, it clearly is something that everyone is committed to. Um, the administration, you know, Secretary Sanders, Governor Baker, Under Secretary Sai, um, are, are, are really um, doing an incredible job of trying to make it work because this is the future. And that's why I think we're also committed to its success. So Paul and I are both teachers, so forgive us. But if you had to give it a letter grade, what letter grade would you give it now? I thought the new age of teaching is we don't give letter <laughs> grades, right? We just write out how well people are doing. Well, everybody's above average, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll be with Paul. This. I'll say we're, we're above average, but there's always room for improvement. <laughs> I, like, I, I like that. Well, you know, let me... Um, let me talk about uh, room for improvement in terms of what's going to happen potentially this year's legislative agenda, something I know important part of your own history and DNA, as, as, as we talked about, and, cur- and certainly your current job. I wonder to see if I can rattle through a, a few different areas that uh, at least uh, many people are, t- are hoping about or talking about as, as foci for legislation, whether it comes out of the governor's proposal or, or the Senate side or, or ultimately the House. So I wonder if I can run through that list. Let's start with pharmaceutical pricing in our state. What should the state legislature be doing in that realm? Well, we need more transparency among pharma pricing. There's no doubt about it. We need to better understand the costs uh, associated with what it takes to get, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, from the bench to the bedside a, a, a drug. There's no doubt, doubt that drugs have an uh, amazing opportunity to save lives and change the quality of life of patients. Uh, but they have to be able to do it at affordable costs. And I think uh, pharma has to be at the table with us. I think payers and providers under the original law in 2012 are at the table, and it's time that pharma joins us. Do you like the Medicaid provision that happened earlier this year, maybe 
furthering in the, in the commercial side around getting some objective evaluation of, of pricing in the mix? Directionally sound, just trying to understand exactly what drugs would be covered under and get a little more information about how it would work. Okay. You were, I just, just to intercede, um, you were the principal author of the 2012 law that created the Health Policy Commission. Do you wish, looking back, that you'd included pharmaceuticals in the HPC process? That's a great question. You know, we, we, at the time, I think we, we weren't sure that we were able to based on some of the federal uh, rules and, and, and statutes. Um, and so, yeah, I look back and I, and I think they probably should have been included in a different way. Uh, I think the other, you know, looking back, if I had the crystal ball, then I think the other thing I would have done is um, um, looked at, and not just providers, but both a provider and payer voice on the uh, on the commission. Mm-hmm. I think we wanted to keep it as distinct and, and separate from stakeholders as possible to make sure there were no conflicts. But, um you know, agenda isn't necessarily a dirty word. I think there are people that approach their jobs with agendas, and there's folks on the on the commission that have an agenda. And I think a stakeholder voice would have been really helpful. And I didn't foresee that at the time, and that's unfortunate. Let me ask you about a second issue, where somewhat novel, perhaps uh, the the governor and Secretary Sutter's have proposed a provision to more or less redistribute redistribute some of healthcare spending towards behavioral health care and primary care, perhaps as much as 30% from a baseline, they, they suggest over a three-year period. Uh, what are your thoughts about that provision? I think this is, an, this is an incredible move in the right direction. I mean, what, what a great um, hallmark for this piece of legislation to be focused on primary care and, and, and behavioral health and mental health. Now, um, I'm not sure the numbers are exactly right or what exactly the investment should be. It doesn't matter. I mean, the fact of the matter is being able to invest in primary care and behavioral health um, will make us healthier as a, as a community. And I assume staying under the benchmark at the same time is a fair well, charge the, the whole, whole thing. Yeah, that's the whole piece of this. How do we continue to, to beat the benchmark but do it in a way and invest our resources in the right place? I think that's what the administration's bill is grappling with. Mm-hmm. And they've been open to trying to work through the how-to. Um, but in terms of being able to put your finger on what's important, I think they have. Do you think this that provision, if, if it comes to fruition, would also help community hospitals a bit? Any thought about that? I mean, sure. It, um, you know, that a lot of primary care is done in, in the community. I think there's there's a lot of a lot of behavioral health that's happening in the community. I think it's for 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 community hospitals. It's really about um, what services they can provide really well, and making sure we get patients to not drive by their community hospital but stop in because there's some really amazing things happening there. But primary care would be is is, is would be a great focus for community hospitals. Okay. Well, let me let me move to what I think could be a contentious issue right, uh, in, in this session, which is dealing with what's referred to often as the out-of-network and surprise billing, meaning when uh, a patient goes to seek care, let's say, uh, at a hospital, and sometimes while that hospital is clearly in their insurance network, they obtain care from a physician who's not, and that has led in some instances to patients getting bills, out-of-network bills, much higher than they expected. And then there's the issue of how much should the provider actually be paid for their service, in this case, the, the physician provider. And while we've, going back to a number of guests, have all seemed to agree on that the consumer shouldn't pay the surprise billing part of it, that doesn't seem appropriate. There's lots of differences of opinion about what the ultimate uh, default price or a process to establish that price ought to be paid to the provider. So share your thoughts with us, if you would. Well, there's no question that patients should not receive a surprise bill, and we are 100% committed to making sure that doesn't happen. And that's part one of the legislation. 
I mean, let's get patients out of the middle. Let's hold patients harmless. Let's do it immediately. Right, that's the easy part. Everybody agrees. Well, it isn't yeah. the easy part because oh. let, let's just do it. Okay. Let's just do part one, and okay. then we can talk about part two and what the what the next steps is. Now, yeah, we do have a, a strong opinion on this, and I think the, 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 the person that has got it right is Congressman Neal. He has been on the side of the patient in this and moving the patient out of the middle and doing it away um, uh, and following the New York model uh, that has shown great success. There are two models to look from. The benefit is we don't have to recreate the wheel. There's a California model and a New York model. The New York model has done incredibly well. Patients are out of the middle. It hasn't cost any additional dollars. And the insurers have won there 54% of the time. So it's not pro-provider or pro-insurer. California is having a much different experience, and things are not going well there. And I think there are some very real concerns that if you look at a benchmarking approach, you will inhibit access in the community hospital. That's exactly the thing we're trying to avoid. I haven't thought about that, but you know what? I'm going to reserve that for our reflection afterwards, Steve, because I know we have a few minutes left. There's well, then I won't be topics. able to reflect on your reflection because <laughs> I'll, I'll be gone. I won't be able to say that you're wrong, Paul. All right. Well, then, 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 I'll, then I'll offer it now. Fair enough. So the, the Brookings Institute came out with their analysis, which Professor Ja from Harvard has made reference to, which says the problem with the New York State approach is that it asks these baseball-style arbitrators to consider – what's the 80th percentile of charges, and they claim, not just Professor Jha, but the Brookings Institute, that actually this has resulted not in savings that, that uh, were referred to in, in, in you know, a September report uh, that, that was published by, by that group, but really uh, an inflation of spending in New York State. So there is a debate there I want you to know. Yeah, so you've cited two reports, and one says that it saved money, and one said that it didn't. So if we find 50 reports... There'll probably be 25 that say one way and 25 that say the other way. So if we agree that there's going to be opinions on both sides, then I'll default to making sure that our patients have access to care in their community and they can't be deemed to be out of network when they try to get a service in one of our community hospitals. So I'll be on the side of the patient both from the bill and from the access. Okay. Okay. Thanks. So, Steve, you were one of the principal authors of the 2012 hospital cost containment law that set up the Health Policy Commission, established the state spending growth benchmark on total health care costs, and you were the chairman of the Health Care Finance Committee at the time. Looking back on that 2012 law, are you, do you think it overperformed expectations, underperformed, and kind of what do you wish you knew then that you know now from your experience leading MHA over these years and your other important activities? Yeah, thanks. So we, I mean, you, we just talked about two of them, which were, you know, maybe we should have taken a different look at pharma initially and certainly the transparency around that. And maybe we should have looked at the stakeholders relative to being able to uh, give some expertise to the, to the commission. Um, I think the urgent care issue is another one. Um, you know, that had started, I think, after the 2006 law, there were zero unaffiliated urgent care centers. Now there's up over 200. And so I don't think we thought that would, that would um, grow as quickly as it has. Um, and I think the, the kind of the, the last piece that, um, you know, I, I mean, it is true that the benchmark is working. We have met it every year, but I think one or, um, you know, other states are following it. That's always a good sign when they're coming to us and they're coming to director Seltz and saying, how can you help us make this work in our state? In our state? All of that, I think, makes us feel proud of what we accomplished. I think one of the things that hasn't happened and um, consumerism hasn't really taken off in healthcare. 
people don't really think about healthcare until they're in an emergent setting, until they really need it. And partly is because we're afraid. We're afraid of our own health. We're afraid of our own mortality. It makes perfect sense. But one of the things that I think we thought in 06 and in 2012 is that people would begin to take a better or a different approach to shopping for their care. I think it's why the state had introduced deductible plans. Well, clearly, those types of products haven't worked. And I think we need to make sure, as we always want to be on the side of the patient or the consumer, we have to look at some of those tools or resources that were given in that statute and aren't working and figure out a different way because um, it hasn't happened in healthcare to think I, the way I think we thought it would hope with people shopping for services or shopping for prices. Um, and that's something that probably needs to be updated. But as you both know from your work in the legislature, it's you know every two years – there's really another update. There was a 2006 law, 2008 law, 2010 law, and then the 12 law. And I think that's what the legislature, the governor, and their wisdom are looking at doing this year is making an update that hopefully will continue to move the 2012 law in the right direction. Are you pleased with the Health Policy Commission and how it's functioning and operating? I think the Health Policy Commission as a whole is a difficult thing to, to pass judgment on, right? There's obviously things we're going to like, things we're not going to like. I think David Salt has done an incredible job running the Health Policy Commission. I think he's, a, he's put together a very good team there. He's a very talented uh, friend and advocate. Um, and so I'm always, always anxious to see the things that he's doing and his team are doing at the Health Policy Commission. As a whole, it's hard to say I like or dislike any or all of the pieces that they're putting on on a day-to-day basis, just like the legislature. Mm-hmm. Might like some laws that are passed, might not like others. Um, but I think that David is, is doing a very good job in running a very difficult agency. And David will be one of our future guests. Yes. So thanks for that preview. So final question um, and national topic, the controversy around Medicare for all or changes to the ACA or revolutionizing it. Eric Dixon, who is the chief of UMass Memorial Hospital in Worcester, says that if you move to a Medicare for all system, his institution would be just fine in terms of the financial consequences of it, which I think got a lot of people surprised to hear that. What's the consensus? What's the sense you have within MHA in terms of looking at Medicare for all, public option, uh, other kinds of changes? Is there a consensus position? Is Eric in the middle, in the mainstream, or is he an outlier? So I think uh, Dr. Dixon is a very smart guy, a very valued member of our executive committee and our board. I'm doing a terrific job at UMass. You know, I think if you further read into his comments, I think what he said was the system needs administrative simplification. That's true, whether that's through Medicare for all or others. And he said it's an option to consider, quote, unquote. And I don't think we disagree. I don't think anyone in our room would say that we shouldn't be considering all options that are available and on the table. The issue for us is we've had the 2006 law. We have 97.8% coverage. We had the Affordable Care Act. Uh, we've had the cost growth benchmark law of 2012. Um, what's Medicare for all going to do to what we've already done here in Massachusetts? We're not the 49 other states, nor, nor is my job to worry about the 49 other states. I think it would have a negative impact here to access on the people and the patients of our Commonwealth. And at a $12 trillion price tag, it's not necessarily an experiment that I think we should do right now. Is it an option that we should consider moving forward and something that we're always open to discussing? Sure, Medicare for all, some type of single payer, and all the various other proposals that are that are born out of that are always things we should be considering. And I think when you have a hospital that has a high Medicaid or a high Medicare population, high public payer population, I think the point that those CEOs are trying to make is that if we're already underfunded by our commercial insurance, 
maybe public payment isn't so bad. But there's so many other pieces of this complicated system um, that it's hard to take one line out of a story out and say that this is really, you know, Eric or anyone else's position on Medicare for All. Okay. Thanks. Paul. Steve, I think um, I want to thank you for uh, joining us today. You, you really have uh, uh, been able to come back at us and everything that we've asked you about. And uh, John and I are going to spend a few minutes now a little bit reflecting. But again, thanks very much for coming. Thanks for having me. Really, uh, as I said, when I started, it's a pleasure to be here. Always a privilege to be in your company. So thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Well, John, that was an interesting discussion. Uh, what's floating around in your head? Well, it's more impressionistic than anything specific so much. So Steve is an experienced legislator who's not just served, but he got some landmark laws done that have changed the landscape of health policy. So a lot of kudos to him in terms of what he's done. And now he's leading probably the most important, powerful uh, stakeholder interest in the whole healthcare system in Massachusetts. And what's interesting is, you know, sometimes he's talking about different, uh, his position that may be at odds with, say, other sectors like pharma or insurance or whatever. One of the things he does a really nice job of kind of, you know, massaging and, and, and not taking on head on is the differences among his own members um, in terms of their interpretations of things like, for example, community hospitals and so forth. But uh, I think it's just uh, another uh, living, breathing example of the incredible um, uh, maturity and effectiveness and skillfulness of the people who are leading these healthcare institutions. We saw it with Laura Pellegrini from the Mass Association of Health Plans. And we'll have more examples coming up as well, but it's uh, interesting and compelling. I, I agree with your observations uh, about Steve, his, his capabilities and process, although I do think he's going to have some challenge this, this legislative session, even on behalf of his members. And I want to focus my comment on that surprise billing issue because you have sort of the insurance folks and the consumers lining up and saying, Look, yes, everybody going to protect the consumer from that surprise bill, but we know premiums go up if that settlement amount of what the doctor gets paid is ultimately too high. And I think there's uh, many of us who say, gee, that, that number ought to be closer to either a Medicare price or a median in-network price. And if you go the route of, of New York State, at least the way some of us look at the data, tied to charges, uh, it seems to increase healthcare spending. So there'll be a debate about that. Jo uh, Steve and I had a little bit of it here. I guess it will be more, even more of it in the legislature. The other quick reflection is, uh, built off the, the single-payer comment, is uh, it's clear that uh, MHA, along with other hospital industry folks, are not favors of, of a governmental uh, Medicare for all approach. But if you maintain the current system, and talk about the need, though, for reducing administrative waste, I think a lot of us would say, well, we need to hear more specifics about that. And uh, there might well be things we can do at a, a state level in that regard. So uh, more ahead, John, and uh, for our uh, guests uh, coming up, I'm sure this will be part of the, this discussion. Until then, we thank our audience for our uh, latest Health and Consequences show today. Thank you, John. Thank you, Paul.